Well, good morning. How do you like the snow? Yeah, how many of you like the snow? Put your hand up. How many of you don't like the snow? Look at those true Southerners raising their hands. It'll be gone probably by two, right? Easy, yeah. Yeah, see, my, in Ohio, this is nothing. You, you, would, you would have, you probably have to, have to go to school until there's about eight inches. So like the South, you know, quarter of an inch, canceled, right? Right? Okay, so how many of you have a bulletin? If you have a bulletin, hold it up. Hold it up. Okay, hold it up. Inside's a bulletin outline for my talk. Here's the great thing about the bulletin outline. You know when I'll, you know when I'll be done. Okay? It tells you right when you get down to here, you'll know old shine's done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We love you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. So at 18 years old, I had to make some big decisions in my life. I was uh, raising a Jewish family. If you can't tell, look at my profile each way. And I was living a very destructive life, a very self-centered life, a very selfish life. I was living for me. I was, li- I was a high school kid. I was a punk. I was living in the 70s in, the high, in high school. I was partying and drinking and doing all this cr- dumb stuff and making some de- bad decisions. So one of my friends one weekend invited me over to his house. He said, hey, come on over. Uh, I want you to meet someone who's changed my life. I was like, cool. What, what's her name? He goes, oh, no, no, no. It's not a girl. He says, uh, God's changed my life. And I was like, oh, you're not, you're not one of those Jesus freaks, are you? And I didn't really know what a Jesus freak was. I'd just seen it on the front of Time Magazine, the Jesus freaks. He said, no, Jesus doesn't make people into freaks, but he takes freaks and makes them into people. I said, okay, that was cute. That was good. And for the next three hours, my friend named Dwayne said, did you know that Jesus was Jewish? No. He said, did you know that his followers were Jewish? Nope. Did you know there's 300 predictions in the Old Testament that relate to Jesus as Messiah? I knew none of this. And so I left that night very confused. Was I taught wrong? Uh, and what would involve for me to make this huge, huge decision? And immediately I started thinking, you know, I was taught as a Jewish kid to not believe in Jesus. I was taught against that. In fact, it was like the worst of the worst to do as a Jewish kid in our contemporary society to, to believe in Jesus. And so I, I knew that my parents would freak out if I made that decision. And more importantly to me, as a high school kid, I was more worried about my friends and what would they think? You know, what would my drug buddies think? What would my girlfriend think? Little did I know that my struggle was not unique at all. And little did I know that the text today in Luke 14 is exactly what I was contemplating and thinking about, in which Jesus starts talking about the cost of being a disciple. I had no idea that this was in the Bible, no clue at all. And yet I was wrestling with it to the point that, have you ever made a decision and you had to make a decision? Has anyone ever done what's called a pro-con sheet? Hello, do I have the right crowd? You ever done a pro-con sheet? You know what I'm talking about? And you got the reason I should do this? You ever had to select a new job or or a vocation or maybe a possible move? Has anyone ever done a pro-con sheet? Put your hands up if you've ever done one of those, okay? My pros were short, the the cons were longer. And I tried to make this decision not based on heaven, not based on hell, but based on is the claims of Christ true? And will, is this Jesus person true? And can this Jesus person, person make a difference in my life? Can he give me purpose in my life? Can he make sense of life? And can he change me? Those were the issues I was wrestling with. 
And Jesus talks about that in Luke chapter 14 in the passage that was read. Jesus starts talking about to a big crowd, who knows if it was this big, this big or bigger, he starts talking to this crowd about being a disciple and the implications of what it means and the cost it involves. And he starts off by talking about the three areas of discipleship. And the first one he ta- calls it is the, the cost of carrying your cross. The cost of carrying your cross. Every person in that audience probably gasped because the moment he said, whoever does not carry their cross, they knew exactly what he was talking about. In that day, they would hold what was called a Roman gibbet. It was a, it was a wooden beam that was both horizontal and vertical. It weighed about 250 pounds. And typically the criminal who carried it was, uh, was extremely already traumatized. They'd already beaten this person. And so they have to carry their own cross where they talk about in scripture, Jesus carried his own cross to Calvary or Golgotha. Well, this 250 pound cross not only was heavy, but there was emotional and mental uh, things going on in that person's mind. The Romans, they didn't invent crucifixion, but they sort of, quote, perfected it. And listen, listen to the quote from a historian. It says, those who were considered worthy, quote, of crucifixion were runaway slaves, criminals, deserting soldiers, and the worst form of criminals. And we know for a fact that Jesus Christ was not a criminal. And yet the Bible goes on to say that Jesus was put on this Roman cross, this Roman gibbet, and he would, he would die there. Now, Crucifixion brought all kinds of interesting and emotional and psychological torment. In fact, the Romans decided there were four things that they wanted to see achieved by a person who was put on a cross. First, unrelented agony. They wanted the person to suffer. Second, protracted death. They wanted slow death. Third, they wanted public public spectacle before everybody that you could see this person. It was sort of a reminder to the audience, you don't want this to happen to you. And the last but most important, public humiliation. The person who was taken to the cross and put on the cross, they would nail, put nails in the person's, toward the person's wrist. You'll see photographs of Jesus where it's right here in the palm, probably not true, probably more at the wrist level nails down by the feet. Sometimes the soldiers would break the legs to make the suffering less intense. But the whole idea behind crucifixion was a horrific death, a horrible death. In fact, listen to this phrase. Crucifixion was a method of torture, not just putting people to death. It was a cruel and unusual form of punishing people. So the implication here is that when Jesus is talking to an audience, He's not saying like, hey guys, if you want to be one of my people, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you a BMW or I'm going to give you a Chick-fil-A card. No, 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 none of that. If you want to be my follower, you must first carry your own cross. A number of times Jesus said that in the gospels and the Bible said some walked away because they knew, his audience knew exactly what he was talking about. That this is not some namsy pamsy, <laughs> this feels so good. This is torture. This is humiliation. And by the way, oftentimes the person was put on the cross naked for everyone to see. 
So when Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you got to be willing to die. And everybody in the audience said, whoa, this is a death sentence. If you want to follow me, you got to be willing to die. See, we think about Lent. We think, oh, I'm going to give something up. Like, I'm going to give up dark chocolate. What are you going to replace it with? Uh... Uh, milk chocolate. No, 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 no. I'm going to give up, uh, I'm going to give up TV. What are you going to replace with it? Uh, Netflix. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about giving up substantial stuff, giving up your life. If any man wants to be a disciple, you must carry your own cross. Then secondly, he says this, you must be willing to follow me. This is the idea of movement. Everybody say movement. It's the idea of I'm going to move forward. Now, in the Jewish tradition, education was a big deal. Up until the ages of six years old, kids were not really allowed to study and read the Torah, the scriptures, the first five books of Moses. But one of the educators in Jesus' day says this, when they are six years old, stuff them with Torah like an ox, feed them like an ox. The first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these were stuffed into the kid's brain. They had to learn it and memorize it and study it. And so if you wanted to be a follower of the rabbi, you had to study and memorize those first five books. And all God's people said, whoa. I mean, that's incredible. But then if you want to move on, you have to move on to stage two, which is learning the middle parts of the Bible. Joshua, Judges, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. On and on and on. Now, if you really wanted to be sophisticated and go all the way with your rabbi, You had to learn all the way from Jonah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. You had to memorize. I'm not talking about knowing where they are. I'm talking about memorizing all the way to the end, to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, or as we call him, the Italian prophet Malachi. Can you imagine? Can you see this from here? Memorizing this much, this much. But let's say the rabbi says, now... You did well. You know the Torah. You know the middle parts of the Old Testament. You know the minor, major prophets. Congratulations. But guess what? You're missing the heart. So I want you to go back home. And I want you to serve with your parents in a trade. And whatever they do, whether it's carpentry or fishing or whatever, I want you to go home. And maybe someday, someday, you will get a wife and you'll get pregnant and you'll have a baby and maybe there'll be a rabbi. Follow me. That was the first commandment to a guy named Peter and Andrew and James and John. Here, listen, listen to what this scripture says here. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. Love that name, Andrew. I got a son named Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake for they were what? What were they doing? Why are they fishing? They didn't make the cut. That's right. They didn't make the cut. They got cut from the team. They're fishing. What did Jesus do? Come, follow me. I see something in you. I see something in you. Maybe you didn't learn all the scriptures. Maybe you don't know everything. Maybe you've blown it. Maybe you made some mistakes. I see something. Now listen, come. I am going to send you out to fish, not for fisher, not for fishes. I'm going to make you a disciple maker. You will now fish for people. And once they saw that, they left their nets and followed 
Yeshua. A disciple is the third concept here. It literally means apprentice. Everybody say apprentice. An apprentice is someone who's been studying under someone. So when when people said in Jesus' day, you will be my disciple, they knew exactly what that meant. They knew that for the next one, two, or three years, you would be totally devoted to learning from that rabbi their skills. Fast forward, Jesus walking on water. Jesus walking on water. Guess who climbs out of the boat to walk on water with him? Peter. Why? Because the disciple does what the master does. The disciple does what the rabbi does. Does that make sense? Whatever the rabbi does, the disciple does, the apprentice. And he understands that. So Jesus says, listen, if you want to be a radical disciple, you got to understand three things. You got to carry your own cross, be willing to die. You got to follow me, which means movement. And third, I want you to be my disciple. I want you to be an apprentice. And Jesus did this for three years. He took 12 dudes, one a traitor, and his model and method of saving the world was very simple. I'm going to spend three and a half years with these 12 guys. I'm going to pour my life into them. I'm going to sleep around, sleep in their general area with them. We're going to hang out together. We're going to fish together. We're going to do guy stuff together. I'm going to do miracles. I'm going to walk on water. I'm going to heal people. I'm going to cast out demons. And I'm going to teach them everything so that when I die and I get resurrected and I send the Holy Spirit, they are going to do the exact same thing that I did. And eventually Christianity be revolutionized by this whole model called discipleship and disciple making, where it's one or two people pouring into another group of people. We've kind of gotten away from that, haven't we? We're more about preaching and teaching, all good stuff. We're about lecturing and seminars. But you talk to people in the medical world, you talk to lawyers, talk to different professions, most of them have, had a, have been discipled. They've been apprentices. They've been under someone. They've learned from someone. Well, Jesus gives three symbols of discipleship and what that looks like and the cost of it. The first one is the, is the builder. Jesus says this. Picture, if you will, a man who's building a tower. And he's starting to build this thing, but halfway through it, he starts to realize, I haven't really considered the cost. I haven't thought about the emotional, the psychological, the financial, the detail of it. I was watching a basketball game last night. One of the commentators was talking about Duke basketball. And he says, he says they are impeccable on detail. They, they study where they're supposed to be. Is that on the perimeter or the defense that they're playing or one-on-one or zone? They know where they're supposed to be. Well, the builder Jesus is talking about has one big temptation. And what is that temptation for any builder? The temptation, let me just ask a group therapy moment. Have any of you ever built something and you got halfway through and realized you hadn't really figured it all out? Anybody? Have you ever, thank you very much. So you ever gotten there and you realize, I didn't really realize it's going to cost this much? Jesus is saying this, suppose you're going to build a tower. Won't you, go, won't you first sit down and contemplate it, can estimate the cost? Won't you consider that? Because here's what's going to happen. And he's saying this to the audience. Hey, dudes, men and women, listen, listen, listen. If you don't consider the cost, here's what's going to happen. You're going to lay this foundation and you're going to realize you don't have enough money. Or you haven't figured it all out. And people are going to laugh at you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to make fun of you. They're, they're going to say, this person began to build, but they couldn't finish. And they're going to walk around going, ha, ha, ha. And that guy's going to feel like a dork. 
So I feel like an idiot. That's happened to a lot of us, haven't it? Where you haven't considered the cost. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you're gonna be my disciple, think it through. Do a pro-con sheet. And like I said, my cons were longer than my pros. I had to think it through. Now, let, let me show you a couple of visual aids of builders who didn't think it through, who didn't really calculate the investment and the cost. Let's see this first one here. Okay, look at that. Okay. Aubrey Bryant, is there a problem with that? Okay. Is there a problem when you're going to the bathroom? Like not two guys trying to go to the bathroom. And I don't, if you can see it on, 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 online, you can see, see there's two urinals and it's just not going to work very well. That's all I'm saying. All right, look at the next one. All right, here's a, here's a condo that's falling apart because the construction wasn't done correctly. Look at the next slide here. Here is a toilet in which the uh, door and the construction of the room wasn't figured out precisely and so they had to cut the door off so you could actually even get in there to use the bathroom. And then the last one, one of my favorite places to visit, Leaning Tower Pisa, which structurally was fine, but what they didn't know was the soil on the other side was not so hot. And so it's kind of, and we were there, they wouldn't, but it, it looks like a gigantic birth, uh, wedding cake, doesn't it? It's kind of amazing. Those that are builders love one word, and we professors love this one word, closure, closure, get the thing done. Now I give an inventory in college called the Myers-Briggs. The Myers-Briggs is a personality inventory. And the last two letters, they have a bunch of letters, I won't go into that. But the last two letters are P and J. Everybody say P and J. Think of peanut butter and jelly, okay? The P is a free-flowing, open-ended, spontaneous. What are you doing this weekend? I hadn't really thought about it. Uh, what are you going to do tomorrow? Huh? I don't know. It's too far away. What are you going to do Monday? Oh, that's really too far away. That's the P. The J is a closure, deadline, get it done. Now, what Jesus is saying is this. In your rush to get this tower done, in your impulsivity to get this thing done, you're doing it poorly. And it comes out worse than when you started. And his point is very simple. The temptation for every builder is that impulsivity will somehow hit your heart and you'll say, I've got to get this blasted thing done. And that could be grades. It could be something you're doing at your house. It could, could be anything, anything that involves time and detail and emotion and money. And what Jesus is saying is this, impulsivity almost always leads to collapse. Doesn't it? Almost always. You ever been that, come on, I've got to get this thing done. I got to, right, I'm just going to get it over with. I'm just going to do it. I did that a couple years ago, mistake with taxes. I'm going to get it done, get it done, get it done. Didn't really think it through. And it cost me. Secondly, the warrior. Jesus says this, imagine you have a team of warriors. Now, in that day, they, they weren't having wars right then, but his, his, historically, Israel's always had wars. So they've been preceded by wars and they need to have wars later. See, so Jesus goes on to say, listen, listen, you got 10,000 on your team, okay? And you're gonna face another team of army that's 20,000. So suppose this king's about to go to war and he's gonna battle another king. And he, won't you first sit down and consider where he's able to 
oppose that one coming against you with 20,000? And you're saying, whoa, 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 what are the odds here? 10,000 to 20, someone tell me, what are the odds? Not good, unless the 20,000 have never fought, right? But it's two to one, right? You're gonna probably go to a delegation and try and strategize and say, whoa, 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 we're not ready to fight because a lot of my people will die. Jesus is saying this. Not only does the builder have a temptation to be impulsive, which leads to collapse, but the warrior, their temptation is to be emotional, totally emotional. Now, we got a picture of Braveheart. Got a picture of that up there? So these guys, if you've ever seen Braveheart, they're jacked up. They are amped up. They are ready to fight. But you got to be prepared. And Jesus is saying, listen, the warrior has to have more than just emotionalism and can figure that out. The warrior, if they have only emotion, will only last so far. And then before you know it, you're going to start losing some of your people. And the trials and the testings for that warrior are going to deflate that army. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you're going to be my disciple, you got to have more than emotion. You have to have a lot more than that because that will not keep a person in the game, just emotion. The third symbol of discipleship is salt. Now this one, these are the first two make sense to me. The second one at first didn't make, the third one didn't make sense to me at all until I started really pondering it. Salt was the way of keeping a piece of meat in Jesus' day uh, uncontaminated. If the piece of meat was already contaminated, you would pour some salt on it and it would kind of stop the rest of the, the contaminated meat to move forward. So the rest of the meat was protected. And Jesus is saying this. Isn't this a really pretty jar? Isn't this salt really nice to have in this salt shaker? No, that's not what he's saying at all. Jesus is saying this. The salt is ineffective if it stays in this salt shaker. It does no good. It serves no purpose. He says salt's good, but if it loses saltiness, how can it be salty again? Now, I got this at Target. You ever heard of Target? Target, tartar we call it. This thing cost me $2.95, and it is a cute little jar. But the salt has no impact if it stays in here. I've got to spray it out. And Jesus' point is this. If you're going to be a disciple of mine, you've got to be willing to pour out your salt onto people. Because if it stays in here, it's useless, it's ineffective. Now let's make some closing comments here. Because I'm so worried that the snow is going to really affect you today. <laughs> Number one, you need to know that true discipleship is not impulsive. It is intentional. Say that with me. True discipleship is not impulsive. It's intentional. Now what I mean by that is, because this is Lent and you're trying to make some decisions about giving stuff up and not giving stuff up, you and I have a decision to make today. If I make a commitment to Jesus Christ, I must think through what are the ramifications? What are the implications? To not just be a follower, 
but to be a growing one, to not just remain a little bit of this much growth, but keep growing and growing and growing till it keep going to the ceilings there and I keep growing. The man who builds the tower, he's thought through the cross. He needs to think through the, the cost. The guy who's gonna be in battle must be intentional. It's not about just, let's just get it done. True discipleship is not just about emotion. Number two, it's about experience. Now, being a youth guy, a youth ministry professor, I've seen hundreds and thousands and thousands of teenagers make, quote, commitments to Jesus. I've seen them at camps. I've seen them at retreats. I've seen them at churches. I've seen them at rallies. I've seen them at conventions. I've seen them at conferences. And there's a lot of emotion. And that's good. But it's not enough. It won't last. Why? Because what we really are longing for and why you're here this morning is not just for the emotion. You're here for the experience. That's why you got out of bed. That's why you left this, this big snowstorm to welcome to Moe's afterwards. You came here for an experience. You believed at some point in your life that coming to Christ, you would have an experience. But I've seen teenagers and young adults and boomers mistake this emotion instead of experience. Jesus told a parable. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last for a short time. Or when trouble and persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Emotion's not enough to carry people through. And if you've been a Christian long enough and you've been hit with cancer and deaths in your family and trials and tribs, or you lost a spouse or you've been divorced once or twice, or you've had enough junk to happen in your life, you know emotion's not enough to keep you going. It's not just emotionalism, it's experience. And then third, related to the salt, discipleship that's true, is not ingrown, it's influential. It's not just staying in the salt shaker, it's coming out. It's giving yourself. And let me say this as I close. A lot of American Christianity has been about this. And I'm, I'm being simplistic, but there's some truth in what I'm saying. A lot of the Christian message in America has been this. Come to Jesus, pray this little prayer. You will go to heaven. We will hand you a Bible. We hope you'll make it. God bless you. See you in 25, 30 years. Hopefully we'll see you in heaven. Good luck. Now, I know that's not really how it works, but that's what we have sort of told people. Pray this prayer, stand up, sit down, do a somersault, whatever it takes. Ask Christ into your life. Go home. Try to read your Bible solo. Try to figure this Christian thing out and see you in heaven someday. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying it's not solo. It's not just praying a prayer. It's not just praying a prayer and hoping to go to heaven. It's radical. It's a cost. So what do we do with all this? Let me give you two questions to think about as you leave today. Question number one, would you consider as a disciple of Jesus, would you consider to be, be an apprentice Meaning, would you become a learner? That's what the word disciple means. Would you become a learner by, listen to this, by inviting someone else into your life 
who can teach and instruct you. Just start with coffee. Get on the phone today. Send an email in the next three days. Put a name and a face to it. Who's someone out there? Maybe there's someone right in this room that I can call and say, hey, let's hang out. Let's get together. Let's go to Panera's. Let's have some coffee. Tell me about your journey. Where have you grown? Where have you struggled? Would you consider this morning relationally? Will you be an apprentice to learn and to be stretched by another Jesus disciple? Or secondly, will you take someone under your wing? You will disciple, you will apprentice them and influence them in the way of Jesus. I told Daniel uh, this morning, Daniel uh, Stallion, who's part of the youth ministry, I told him in the second service, I referred to high school kids as little punks. I said, you know, they're little punks and they don't really know anything, but I love them. I love them because they're teachable. And I said to the second service, and I'll say it to you, because I don't really believe they're punks. I believe that they actually need us. And now that I've hit 60, I've realized this. One of the great failures of youth ministry across the globe is we think the only thing teenagers need is young college students. Or maybe we'll send a 32-year-old at most. But what I've come to believe is that teenagers need 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds and 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds. And if you get to 90 or 100, teenagers need you. You know why? Because you have the experience. You say, whoa, 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 you don't understand my, my marriage failed. You know what? We can learn from that. Well, you don't understand my business has, has failed. That's okay. Maybe a teenager and a young adult kid can learn from you. What I'm saying this morning is this. Let's get back to the heart of discipleship the way Jesus invented it. Him pouring into 12 guys. This morning, your choice is simple. Will I consider pouring my life into somebody? Or if I don't feel comfortable with that, would I become a recipient? Would I become an apprentice where someone can help me grow? The choice is mine and the choice is yours. Will you count the cost? It's up to you. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to know you and serve you, but we can't do that in a vacuum and we can't do it solo. We just, we found over the years it doesn't work well. So Lord, would you give everyone here courage to take that one huge baby step today or tomorrow to not let this out of their heart, to saturate it in their, in their minds, in their soul that all of us in this room need someone to pour into. And all of us need someone for us to pour into, into us. And would they take this morning the challenge? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.